Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, this is Gary Laney. I'm a serial entrepreneur, speaker, author, and I'd like to welcome you to the Inspiring Leadership Series by Jonathan Bowman Perks. I'm here today to tell you that I have been invited to this exciting podcast, and I hope that you'll stay with us and learn as much as I have during this experience. So I'd like to now turn it over to Jonathan Bowman Perks. Thank you very much indeed, Gary. And it's lovely to have you here. The connection was made for us by... Uh, One Golden Nugget and Stephen Foster, and also the previous uh, podcast host that I looked after, the guest I looked after, was uh, Brian, who's a great friend of yours, appeared in your book. And so it's a lovely connection. Let's firstly, perhaps describe a bit, I mean, one hell of a career you've had and very interesting. But right now you've, you've got a number one Amazon bestseller in your category, which is called The Power of Strategic Influence. Would you say a bit about just in a nutshell about the book and uh, what people will get from it when they read it. And then we'll go into your life, but just perhaps a couple of minutes, just tell us about the book. Well, sure. I just, you know, this is a, something I'm very proud of. I've been wanting to write a book for 15 years, Jonathan. Uh, when do you find the time to write a book? You know, when you're busy, when you have businesses, when you're, you have a lot of responsibilities and you have a family, how do you do that? Uh, I was fortunate uh, to have been taught by some amazing mentors during my life. Stephen Covey was a mentor that uh, wow. greatly influenced my wanting to write this book. But uh, it was really a COVID that, that took uh, me out of business for uh, several months and allowed me to have the time to be able to do uh, what I'm doing. So, um, you know, it, it's been a, a marvelous experience. It, it really contains everything I've ever learned uh, about leadership, everything I've ever learned about influence, compiled into 12 chapters, two that are kind of a perspective preparatory stage for learning what you need to do to go on this journey and becoming influential and helping other people along the way. So there's, there's a couple of double theme. One is how do you, how do you gain uh, and identify uh, people in your life that uh, are influential that can help you succeed, but at the same time, how do you help other people along the way? Mm. I used to think that you'd wait until you're finished uh, you have arrived in your career and then that's when you help people. But I've learned in the last 20 years now, I should have probably started earlier. I should have started in my twenties really focusing on other people. And I was too focused on myself, but we can talk more about that. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's very interesting. Cause I'm, as I'm thinking about writing my next book, which is CEOs and teams, inspiring leadership, of which you're going to be in it. Um, I, I was reading Stephen Pressfield. And um, he gives some advice about um, writing books and that, that people aren't really interested in what you think. It's really got to be about them. They've got to connect with it. So I thought that was yeah, very good. good um, but let's uh, take, take us back, if you would, because um, and also on the shelf behind you, your 19 year old granddaughter wrote a book. Would you just perhaps bring it down? And just for those on the audio, they won't be able to see it. But. But what's the book called and, and what did that do to inspire you? Tell them what it's called. So it's called All for Him. So my granddaughter, this is my oldest granddaughter. I, uh, it sounds like I'm very old when I say I have a 19-year-old granddaughter. <laughs> um, she's, phenom- she's phenomenal. She has been writing for several years. She wrote this when she was 17. She published it. I was one of the first buyers of her book. It's called All for Him. And it's all about a story of this caring and, and wonderful experience between her and really her little brother, which if you want to know the truth, that's why she wrote this, had a very close relationship with her brother. And now she's in college and she's greatly missing him, but now she's writing a second book. So mm. I have to give her credit. I think if I, one of the reasons that motivated me to, to write my book, even during COVID was because my granddaughter had shown the way and uh, gave me the inspiration and motivation to do them. And that's a lovely segue into during your life we're all influenced by certain people who leave lasting memories with us and shape us either in good ways or bad ways but even the tough times shape us a lot 
if you were to take us back to a few key points in your life story in just a few minutes, Gary, what, what would you touch on and who would you mention that have shaped your life and made you the leader you are today? Well, it's a hard question. There's so many people that have had an influence in my life, but um, I recently had to identify three people and maybe I can talk about those first. Mm -hmm. uh, so number one was my father and I'll put my mother along with that. But when it comes to business, life preparation, uh, gaining integrity, uh, learning how to be responsible, having commitment, uh, I give credit to my dad. Uh, my dad uh, was a retired army officer. Uh, by the time I was growing up, he was still in the reserves, but uh, you know, he was in World War II, then he became an entrepreneur. I never knew my father as someone that worked for someone else. He always worked for himself. He always took care of our family. He's very responsible. But he was the person I give credit to for giving me, giving me what I would call my first MBA. I have an MBA from Northwestern Kellogg. I, I value that greatly. But I have to give this distinct credit to my dad because he learned me. Every, he taught me everything about business from the time I was a, a few years old. Uh, when I came home from school, I didn't go home to play usually. I would go to one of his businesses, one of his stores. And I started out at the very bottom. I was not some prince you know, son that was given authority and, and easy way going through this business. He had multiple and he had a chain of stores. And so I would go and I started out stocking shelves. I graduated, I guess, to delivery boy. I then uh, moved into accounting and bookkeeping. Uh, he, I learned that. I did that for a couple of years. I got good at it. I uh, then moved on to sales uh, and then marketing, advertising, and then ultimately running in one of his businesses. And then before he retired, he, he let me buy his last business. And so I became a business owner. So I, I really have amazing uh, memories of him. He died in 2009. I, I really miss him. I didn't value my father as much as I should have when, I, when he was alive. And I certainly do now. So that was number one. Uh, number two, um, just staying with yes, go for ahead. a second, Gary. Yeah. Um, one of the things you and I talked about before we met is that having served in World War II, dad saw some pretty horrific things and that it gave him PTSD and, and that there were occasions you caught him um, just being affected by this with some of the nightmares. Do you want to just say a bit about that and just how tough yeah. things can be for some people who've been through that? Yeah, that's, that's hard to talk about because I lived through it. Uh, I was the youngest in my family. Uh, my father was in World War II. He saw lots of death and he saw lots of uh, uh, destruction. And um, so, you know, he never promoted uh, nor wanted me to be in the military, even though if you take my family, my father, my grandfather, all the way back to George Washington, we had military people in my family and I wanted to follow that tradition. He talked me out of it because of what he dealt with. He, now, he had good things to say about our country. He was, he gave me such pride in our country, you know, because of what he did and what he, what he sacrificed and what he saw other people sacrifice. But he didn't want me to go through that. He didn't even want me to own a gun. I mean, so we didn't have no guns in our house. Uh, we had, you know, I was afraid to kill a fly. <laughs> I mean, it was, I, I really started to really value life. And I think that was something he taught me besides integrity. But I, Jonathan, I, I would wake up at nights as a, a kid and as a teenager, and even the night before my wedding, my dad, you know, was screaming in the night and I'd go run in to see what's going on and find out that he was having another dream of somebody chasing him, trying to get him. And uh, it was, it was hard. My mom really was wonderful to support him through all that. She didn't, uh, it didn't bother her. It, it, he just, she just cared for him. I thought it was awesome, mm. but somehow he was able to function. Mm. And have a great life, be an entrepreneur, and uh, and help a lot of people. So, I admire him. I really appreciate the example, role model he was yeah. to me. I admire him too, Gary. And you mentioned, thank you for that. Sorry to go to such a, a tough space, but but it makes it all the more real because we've all got some very tough situations and stories. And until you know someone's story, how dare you even try and understand them? And I'm a great believer in hearing people's life stories to, to you. have greater respect. And I have great respect for you and your family. So who was number two and who was number three that influenced you as you were growing up? So I, I've got a long list, but I'm gonna give you those three. So number two was a guy named Dan Gable. Uh, most people, unless you've ever followed wrestling sports, has never heard of Dan Gable. No, <laughs> have you? No, no, I haven't. Oh my goodness. Okay, well, he's a legend. And so I'm gonna tell you right now, 
you need to look him up, Dan Gable. Uh, this guy was a guy that I revered as the top, amazing, most greatest athlete to ever live. I know they're, they're great athletes in every sport, but wrestling. So here's the story really quickly in a nutshell. <clears throat> when I was uh, 13, 14, I saved my money because I wanted to, uh, and then 15, I, I wanted to own a motorcycle. And so my working for my dad, working for other people, I, I saved up $500. This is back in the early 70s. Back then, $500 was a lot for a kid. And I had the money set aside to buy a motorcycle. Uh, I'd been in wrestling for two or three years. I guess was, I was in my uh, third year and I, did, I was doing fine. I was winning about two thirds of my matches. And then my coach called me <clears throat> to tell me that there was going to be a wrestling camp in a nearby city where a man named Gan Dan Gable, who of course I had heard of because uh, it was a great sport, and he said, he's going to come and he's going to be one of the teachers, one of the mentors in the camp. So you should go. Well, I found out the cost of it was $500. My dad didn't have the money to just fork that out, but I had saved that for, you know, for two or three years. And so I said, well, what's the decision? Motorcycle, Dan Gable. I made the right decision and I gave the money and I bought my ticket to this camp. I uh, went to the camp and let me tell you what happened. When I got to the camp, um, there were hundreds of kids. I was ambitious to you know, learn new skills, things I'd never been taught from my coach. My coach, by the way, was a, my wrestling coach had never wrestled in his life. Uh, he'd bring experts in to teach us. He was a football coach, but he amazingly you know, introduced me to things that allowed me to learn, but I never that, was able to learn from him much. So anyway, I went to the camp. I get there, we have our drills the first morning, and then the, the uh, coach, uh, name was uh, Roderick, it was a Roderick wrestling camp. He was a coach for uh, uh, Ohio, I think. And so he came to me and he said, Gary, we've selected you to be the escort for Dan Gable. Wow. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when he arrives, I want you to go pick him up, get his bags, take him across campus, make him feel comfortable and check him in. Now, I'm 15 years old. I said, wow, you're really asking me to do that? I said, absolutely. You know, so... Time came after the drills, I was supposed to leave. So I walked over, luckily we didn't have internet back then. You know, we had magazines. So I did recognize him from the Olympics. He, would, he had just won the gold medal from the 72 Olympics. And I recognized him immediately, walked over to him, shook his hand, very gracious man. He's still alive today, by the way. Um, but he and I started to walk across campus and I was able to get to know him on a personal level. It was an amazing experience, maybe 30 minutes maybe 40 minutes. <clears throat> During the process of walking across, I decided to ask him a question that was showing my immaturity, my youth. And I asked him, so here's Dan Gable in high school. He won 64 straight matches, never lost in high school from the beginning to the end. In college, he won 117 matches. Excuse me, he, he, he had 117 matches, I think. And I think he lost one. I might have my numbers off just a little bit. But the only, the only uh, match that he lost was his last match in the national championships of his senior year. And by the way, the two years previous, he won the national championship. So no one ever expected he would lose. He lost 13 to 11 by two points by, by a guy named Larry Owens, I believe. And so I, in my immaturity, said, Dan, I said, well, I have a question. What happened to you? Why did you lose that one match? <laughs> Oh, oh no. <laughs> you know, and I said, well, of all the things and I just hit myself, why did I ask him such a stupid question? And, and uh, you know, I could have asked him so many things, you know, about how do you approach it? How do you, you know, learn the skill sets you have? I could have asked him anything. And I asked him that dumb question. And so his response very graciously says, well, I had a bad day, Gary. That was it. So I, at that point, I determined, listen, I'm going to be the most dedicated, you know, best listening, you know, listener type of student in this, in this camp of anyone. And uh, I was, so I went on, I got to wrestling multiple times. Uh, I was undefeated during that whole camp. Uh, I very, it took him very seriously. I think that experience maybe jolted me enough to make me want to grow up. And I had a great experience out of the next coming year. Um, I went undefeated during the whole season. Wow. And then I went on to have a national ranking uh, later. So Though I had a very short time and personal experience with this man, 
he was it was mind-boggling and he mm -hmm. took me to levels i could never ever expect to know because he taught me number one discipline he taught me how to counter moves he taught me how to approach you know uh, your opponent and in and, and that one week i learned more than i had learned in four years and um mm -hmm. So it was phenomenal. So that, that wow. was number two. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer. But no, look great. up Dan Gable. Yeah. Uh, he went on to become the most famous coach of all time. Uh, in his, I think, 15 years of coaching, his team won 97% of their matches. Wow. And during his last, um, when he wanted the gold medal in the Olympics, and uh, forget where it was at, but in 72, not a single opponent got a point against him. Not a single point. So, I mean, he's just, he's just a favorite, uh, mm -hmm. you know. And the, th uh, and the third one, who is the third? And the third one, uh, I have to admit, it was Stephen Covey. Wow. So, um, and take you back just a little bit. When I was um, out of high school, I went to my first year of college. And then I decided uh, I had an opportunity to become a service missionary uh, with my church. And they sent me to Spain. I'd never been on an airplane. I'd never been outside of like a two or three state area where I lived. And so all of a sudden I was in, I found myself in Spain in a different language. I'd never learned Spanish in high school, uh, different culture, living with the people. It was a, it was a cultural shock. Um, but I started to adjust to it. And, and a few months later, I ran into a book uh, by the name of, the book was called Spiritual Roots of Human Relations. And it was written by a, a man named Stephen Covey. I read it, I consumed it, it transformed my thinking about relationships, how you approach people, how you do it in a win-win fashion, uh, but it had a spiritual tone to this book. Um, so it really set me up for success for the next two years as I served people. Uh, I finished that experience, I came back to, and got back into college. And during the, my time and looking for a job because I needed to be able to support myself through college, um, I learned about a sales job where I could uh, make more money in a summer than I could make all year trying to work on campus. Uh, somebody told me about it, so I decided to take it. Well, I did that. I had a great experience. I was number one rep out of 125 salespeople. It was a great experience for me. I wanted to become a motivational speaker, so that was kind of the start of all that and having a success. And then I went to a training experience because I became a manager with this company. And guess who they introduced uh, in our training camp? Stephen Covey. Wow. And at the same time, that same year, I, I had to take an organizational behavior class. Didn't realize that Stephen Covey was the dean of this school, of this department. And so all of a sudden, I found myself in this class. Very lucky to get into it because it was 400 plus students. And Stephen Covey, like Phil Donahue, probably way before Donahue did his thing, and Oprah Winfrey, he walked out into the audience. He was so congenial, so interactive. He would connect with people. It just, it just opened my eyes. And then here I was in training with this guy. And then for the next almost 10 years, by the way, trained and mentored and interactive with Stephen Covey. So I became very, very familiar with him to the point where I called him Stephen, knew his wife, Sandra, and their children, uh, Stephen M.R. Covey, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, when they were young. So it was, it was an experience that, that taught me not only uh, about uh, life, but he taught me about relationships, about how you approach life, about how he become productive in life. And, and uh, it, it really shaped and molded me and, and really is the foundation, I think, of the basics of why I wrote a book about. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. And to be honest, along with how to win friends and influence people, um, I, as a dyslexic, I listened to a lot of audiobooks in those early days, Earl Nightingale and um, the strangest secret and and a lot yes. of Stephen yeah, Covey, yeah, yeah. a lot of Stephen yeah. Covey's work and that shaped me um in that stage while I was still an army officer and and it's shaped me to this day and and so I have great respect for you of all that you've accumulated over the years I'm looking forward to getting to know you and keeping in touch because I love bouncing ideas off people who've learned from others because Can I just say one thing really quickly yeah so uh, I also met Earl Nightingale. So the company wow. I was working for brought in all these amazing speakers, Dennis yeah. Wheatley, Earl Nightingale, Bob Richards, who was the first, first person that motivated me to want to be a speaker. Uh, he was the gold Olympic uh, champion of the pole vault, used to be on the Wheaties box. I met him. Uh, so, you know, it just, these kind of people being around them, 
makes mm. you think differently. It makes you want to go out and conquer the world. Yeah. Stephen Covey was not the motivational speaker I'm talking about, though. He was he was deep and he would connect with you. It was not the rah-rah guy. No. Uh, he, he gave you uh, concepts that would transform your life if you, if you followed him. So yeah. anyway, I just wanted to mention. Wow. No, and, and very, very special. Um, I, I just think, think about those people and others who are going to influence them. And, and you will through your book and even through people listening in 55 countries around the world to just what you're saying today. So thank you for being here. Let's go to your two, two moments in your life. One, which was your proudest moment and, and what you learned from it. And the other, which was one of your darkest moments and what you learned from that, Gary. Okay, that, that's another tough question. <laughs> uh, so Jonathan, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my proudest moments in, in two parts. So first of all, I, I, was, I was fortunate to be involved with a company that went public. So I got to do an IPO. That was a big proud moment of my life. That's all I'm gonna say about it. Uh, but I'm gonna explain another proud moment that uh, I'm gonna call my dark moment. Um, at the same time. So, so I mentioned to you, I wanted to be a motivational speaker. I don't know why that was such a crazy goal of mine, but it was at a young age. And so once I decided after listening to Bob Richards, that uh, uh, I wanted to do that, I set myself up to pursue it and uh, wanted to break records. I wanted to create stuff that would make me self-made so that I could get up in front of people and say, look what I've done. I did it by myself and you can do it too. I wanted to be able to say that. So I, uh, every aspect of everything I did, I wanted to be the best at it. I was the number one salesman out of 125 people. I became a top manager, top sales director. Um, at that point, I decided I needed to be more well-rounded. So I left uh, and, be, and got an MBA from Northwestern. I actually wanted to be in a top 10 school and uh, in the world. And so I applied to, the, to 13 of the top 20 just to make sure. And I got accepted to seven of those, including Northwestern, Columbia, Wharton, et cetera. I didn't uh, apply to any schools in England. I wish I had. But um, so I, I chose Northwestern because it, for me, it was more pragmatic. It was a marketing school. They had case study, but it wasn't required. It was based upon the professor and the, and the topic. So it was a great school for me. Uh, so I got that. I was a, I was a co-chairman of the consulting club. I got into consulting. I took a job with a guy named Tom Kuzmarski out of Chicago, who's now become famous in the consulting innovation world, product innovation. And then I came back uh, after that experience, became a VP of sales with the same company I'd worked with before that I knew Stephen Covey with. Did that for, for three or four years. And then at that point, I, I finally got to a point where I said, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to become a motivational speaker. So I, I researched, found some promoters, found one that would like me. And, and so decided to leave my job and uh, become a motivational speaker. I came up with some content. And so for the next three and a half years, I did speaking full-time. It was not an easy thing to do because at the beginning it was hard because you're not great at what you do until you've done it for a while, right? But after six months, I got really quite good and I was motivating people. I was getting uh, very good ratings and I was being top ranked. And so I continued on and I got better opportunities, bigger crowds. Um, I have to tell you, I hit the epitome of my life. That's what I wanted to do. This, I was still in my 20s, by the way. I was not quite 30. And it hit me one day that this glorified thing I wanted to do was not fulfilling, not enough. Because let me tell you why. I was, I was traveling 45 weeks of the year. I was in a city, every, different city every other day. I was home. You know, out of 52 weeks, I was home what, seven weeks, and uh, I would leave on a Wednesday, come home on a Sunday, I was gone four days every week, I had young daughters at home, I missed so much uh, in their lives, they were young, but I, I just missed so much, when I was home, I have to tell you, I have a good conscience that I did focus on my family when I was home, but it was too much to be gone for three and a half years, every week, and I spoke to over 100,000 people, so that was a check mark, you know, uh, but it was a bright moment, a proud moment, but if, I think for me, it was a dark moment because I realized mm. it's too much to sacrifice. Mm. And so I quit all that. And uh, I was at the top of my game and I was making good money and I just, I quit it all and said, I've got to go back. I just focus on my family, my relationships, go back into corporate and I can be an entrepreneur later. Mm. So that's, that's kind of my um, good and dark moment. And one last dark moment, I'll, I'll tell you when I became an entrepreneur, 
I left <clears throat> a good corporate job with a company that was got acquired by Oracle later. Uh, it was a formidable competitor of Salesforce. I knew Mark Benioff at the time. And um, I left all that because I wanted to become an entrepreneur, I decided. So here's my deal again, you know, about getting out and becoming, uh, thinking of myself. Well, I took a job as a president of a training company. And in my book, I talk about six building blocks for a trusted partnership. Well, this partnership I went into as president of the company, but I was a partner with this guy who started the company and, and the building blocks were not there. So we had common goals, if you will. It's the first building block where we wanted to get to this bigger company, have this success. The next step, however, is common strategy. And he and I saw things so differently. We did not see, agree on the way we should get there. And that's instrumental in a partnership. Mm-hmm. And, and so it fell apart. I was in the middle of building a multi-million dollar real estate investment. And I always had no job and no income and uh, was very nervous about it. My wife was more nervous than I was. And I, I was about to go back into corporate, about to go back and try to find another job. And I talked to my wife and she, oh my gosh, she was so supportive. She said, if, if you want to be an entrepreneur, I'm with you. And so I got her permission to travel the country. I evaluated hundreds of businesses, hundreds, and came up with, narrowed it down to 10. And I bought seven of them, mostly small businesses, but I decided I'm just going to follow the money. I'm going to, I'm going to put myself into it. I'm going to divide my time and whatever, wherever the money shows up, I'm going to follow it. And uh, luckily three of them became big hits and I uh, made a bunch of money. It was very successful. And my real estate even turned out okay later. So huge risk, a lot of stress. And um, what was a dark moment actually turned out to be a good thing. So yeah, I ended up on top. Well, great, a great story and very powerful, Gary. Thank you for that. And, and, and taking from the lessons from your darkest moments and from some of the brightest moments. If you were to go back and see the 16 year old Gary Laney, who was doing his wrestling and working hard and learning from <laughs> yeah. dad and, uh, and playing his part as the youngest in the family, what one bit of advice would you give the young you, knowing all you know now, and you've written this, this, this number one bestseller about the power of strategic influence. What would you say to the young Gary, this matters and don't worry about that? Uh, the relationships are more important than fame. I mean, fame will come if you deserve it. I've learned since then that relationships, influence, stature, leadership comes when you earn it. And you earn it because you serve other people and they, they respect it and they want you to lead them. So that, that's what I tell myself. You know, don't worry about getting fame first. It'll come when it's, when it's due. And, uh, and, if it's, and it should be something that's comfortable, right? You, you shouldn't feel like you're above other people. You should feel like you're there still at that point to be a servant leader. I like that new term. It's a good mm. new term. Yeah, it, it, you've reminded me of that lovely story, uh, one audio book I'm listening to at the moment. Um, uh, I think it's about persuasion. I, I've forgotten what it is. I'll think of its uh, name in a minute. But uh, there's two prime ministers discussing the outgoing and the incoming prime minister, and they're having a conversation, handing over. And this chap rushes in, oh, it's, oh there's these problems, these problems. And the, the outgoing prime minister says, Michael, remember rule six. Oh, oh yes prime minister very sorry very sorry and backed away and they're chatting a bit more and then another lady rushes in oh this is this is wrong and it's, it's just not <laughs> and he went margaret remember she said oh yes rule six prime minister sorry very sorry i, I i'll sort it not a problem it's it doesn't matter <laughs> the other the income prime minister said what, what what's this rule six <laughs> and he said rule six don't take yourself too damn seriously <laughs> ah right and he goes what are the other rules he said there are no other rules <laughs> so i love for it me, i love it for, yeah. for me don't take yourself too damn seriously i have throughout my life taken myself too damn seriously yeah, yeah and as so, i look back so in my in my days in the army trying too hard to impress people to and the more I try and impress people, the less impressed they are. Yeah. And the more I'm impressed by them and I try and get the relationships, as you just said, the, it just comes. People buy you rather than you selling yourself. But it just takes me to 60 before I start to realize it. But anyway, thank, thank you, you for that. Thank you for sharing thank, that. Well, that's thank awesome. You, thank you. So, Gary, we're yeah. going to go very quickly, quick fire around the Inspire Leadership Compass. 
the compass that we designed from my work that my wife and I did around what makes high performing people, teams and individuals, what qualities do they have? <clears throat> and, and we found that, okay. um, I just want to touch on these and just see what matters for you. MQ first, a moral quotient, your fundamental values that you live by. If you, if you had to pick one fundamental value that you, you live by, that you found has really helped you, uh, what, what is it? And what do you do when it slips? Because we all do slip occasionally. And how do you bring yourself back on track to a fundamental value that you hold true? Well, I, um, this takes me back. I mean, as soon as you said that, I thought of my dad again. Um, integrity was everything uh, to my dad. Hmm. And so I have to say that's number one. I mean, I, I, I could write a list of things and, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I thought about some of these things you might be asking me, but um, yeah, I'll tell you that when, at a very young age, um, my dad told me what honesty was about. I didn't, I didn't know the word integrity back then. Um, but, uh, so what would happen is I was, um, walking home, my dad had a store, I used to go to it. I'd work there after school and I'd walk home. It was a few blocks away. And one day I was walking back and I found this $5 bill on the ground. So, you know, my young, you know, I was like seven or eight years old. I took the money. I went to the store, bought some candy. thought that was pretty cool. I found this money and I went home. Uh, back then we didn't have showers. We had baths. I don't know about you, but we, we didn't have a shower. Yep. And so I was in the bathtub. My mom came in to clean up, grab my clothes. You know, she always sorted through my pants and she found $3 and change. And she didn't say a word. But uh, like the, that night or the next day, my dad came to me and said, hey, I understand you found some money. Where did you get it? Because he was missing $5, apparently. <laughs> so I said, uh, well, I found it on the street when I was walking home from the, from the store. He said, well, let's get in the car. Let's go see where you found it. My dad was very, very hands-on military guy. So we drove. I showed him exactly where I found this $5 bill. So he said, okay, that's, that's cool. Uh, he says, so I think we should do the following. I said, what's that? He says, I know the chief of police and let's go see if anybody is missing $5. I mean, in this whole town, right? So we, we go to the police station. The guy's name was Burl Peterson. I'll never forget his name. He's the chief of police. And I go in there, it's a small, we're in a small town. And so the, the jail was kind of small, kind of like Andy Griffith, if you ever watched that. And there was a jail in there. So we go in there and he says, well, tell the, tell the chief you know, what you found. I told him I found this money. And he says, well, chief says, well, why don't, we, why, don't you, why don't you give me the money? And if somebody doesn't claim it, we'll give it back. I, okay, cool. Here it is. I don't care. You know, so then, and he says, uh, and my dad said, well, God, that's interesting. That jail, can we see it? So they opened it up. I walked in and, the, and then the chief of police closed it and locked it. Uh, okay. What's going on here, guys? <laughs> you know, I was just a kid. They let me sit in that thing for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. I don't know what it was. And then they opened it up. My dad just wanted to give me a taste what it was like to be behind something you had you had no freedom with so i don't know what happened to money i never saw it again by the way maybe the off maybe the police chief of police handed it back to my dad because my dad really was missing five bucks and he thought i took it i don't know but i'll tell you on the deathbed of my father 89 years old i said dad before you go i just want you to know i didn't take that five dollars man <laughs> Oh, integrity. That is, a, that is yeah. a great story. That is a great. I will always remember that one. I love stories, yeah. metaphor stories, and clearly, as a motivational speaker of some skill, that's a, a great well, one. I'm, that I'm, I'm sure. a storyteller, so you'll if, if I go too long, just stop me. No, no, that's great. Let's do some other <clears throat> quickfire ones, Gary. Uh, PQ, which is meaning and purpose. Purpose. Um, I, I do enjoy enjoy Dr. Wayne Dyer. And, and there's one, yeah, he's, me too. He, he's um, talking to me a lot about, um, about purpose. And, and I wondered, why have you done what you do? What gives your life meaning and purpose, Gary? Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring up a couple of things from my book. So in my book, and I'll just share it that way because this is my life, I, I wrote about in my book, how I run my life, my business, et cetera. So all of us, 
grow up and have to develop what I call personal value. Uh, that's what you're made of before you become employed. It means you're educated. It means you develop values and you also gain expertise, which tells someone else you have value. And now you can exchange your value for a, a job, a career, whatever. <clears throat> that only gets you so far. I mean, your education is good for the first year, for the first job, and maybe going forward some of the things you learn. But I've learned, but uh, it, there's two things missing. One, there has to be driving forces that make you do what you do. And that's what you just, you just started to talk about. And that's purpose. So after you get some value, you have to figure out what your driving forces are that'll help you sustain yourself, keep going when things get tough, uh, or if you get bored even. And so I call them personal driving forces. That's purpose, it's passion, it's motivation, it's your family, it's, it's retirement, it's recognition, all those things that make you do what you want to do. And the third one, by the way, I'll just mention, and that is uh, competency. So once you get, you've got the driving force, you've got the value. Now, where's the competency so you can actually become a leader? And that, that's more important uh, later in, in your life. But back to the purpose idea that you brought up. Um, I mean, to me, I mean, family's huge. And motivation for me and recognition was really huge in the beginning. I, I like being recognized. I'm, I'll, I'll admit it. You know, I was in drama. I loved to be on stage, uh, on the track team. I loved coming in first uh, in cells. I like to be the top guy in the newsletter. I mean, uh, recognition was huge to me. But not to the extent where it, it costs other people um, something. Stephen Covey taught this win-win concept, which I've never gotten out of my system because it, it's beneficial. So purpose for me means doing something that's, that's going to be long-lasting, that's going to give substance to why you do what you do, that's going to give you a purpose to help things happen, um, to have a family, to have a home, to, have, to provide for your kids, uh, to, to get to the point where you can help other people. And in the beginning, you can't do that. You're really you're reliant. But then when you become self-reliant and then you become inter-reliant, which is even more important, no one's ever self-reliant, really. I mean, you can take care of yourself because you know who to go to, but you can't do it all by yourself. Yeah. So that's what I learned early on is that you, you got to stop trying to do it all by yourself. It's not just about you. Very, and, and that fits with all of my own experiences. Too. <clears throat> Thank you for that. And then... Touching on the next element of the eight, which is health quotient. Uh, me, this is about your mental and your physical health and well-being, Gary. Uh, for a man who was a, a very successful uh, wrestler and, and also, you know, competitor <laughs> okay. and, and sporting and always trying to be number one, what tip would you give for people to keep good mental health? that you're now practicing later in life at the same age that we're roughly bar three years and also physical health for, for people who are older, what do you do for your mental and your physical health? Uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to bring <clears throat> one element to, and I think that, uh, um, recognizing God in my life and, and other people, mm -hmm. uh, helps me have a balance. And I think there's a time and a place for everything. And so, you know, some, some people that try to, you know, every 15 minutes try to, you know, accomplish every goal they have in the life, you can't get anything done. You have to have more concentrated time to do that. You and I could not have a five minute conversation and cover the stuff we're trying to cover today. So for me, health, health, you know, sports has been great, but I'm not a sports athlete anymore. And so I, and I work myself to death. I'm, a, I'm kind of a workaholic. But, and so I have to take myself out of it and I do compartmentalize myself but I, after I've had the time to accomplish something. So I walk a lot, my wife and I walk, we hike. I do like to lift weights. Uh, I, we are focusing really strongly uh, right now, my wife and I are on, on the food we eat. Mm -hmm. And I've had health allergies with food, with sugars. And so we're right now we're on a plant-based plant -based diet. My wife more so than me, um, I still have a little bit of white meat and stuff, but, and I'm not, a, I'm not really a vegan. But it's, it's really kind of changed my life. I mean, my arthritis I had before is, is not as bad as it used to be. Uh, my heart rate's better. I sleep better. Um, I don't have stomach aches. I mean, even when you get older, you have all these things start happening, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel great. And so that's number one. My wife, who had a heart issue, and uh, it, it was a wake-up call for both of us, we went on this plant, 
whole whole food plant diet, mm-hmm. and it has been amazing. No, um, go good. ahead. That's good. And then no, on the mint, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say it really resonates for me, and I'm looking at my shelf. How not to die. How not uh, to die. We yeah, got that. Which is uh, health defense by Dr. Paul Clayton. A whole guts, uh, uh, clever guts. Um, a whole <laughs> load of books about the microbiome. I went vegan for a year. I, I've introduced a few, a lot of fish um, sure. and, and a little bit of white meat, um, yeah. but, but uh, I, I do get it. And, and we are what we eat. And I'm on uh, for about 180 days. I've been doing it now without break, uh, intermittent fasting. Uh, so 16 yeah. hours of fasting and eight hours of eating. And that does this uh, autophagy where it, it breaks down the old sand cells that can become cancerous. And also you get the ketosis, which is feeding the brain with some of the food that's being reprocessed. And with a brother who died of cancer a mere uh, month ago at the age of the same age as you, Gary, and I never yeah. saw that one coming with, yeah. it was 10 weeks from diagnosis to death. Wow. I, I'm really interested in how I can match my lifespan to my health span because I see too many people, uh, relations and others who, who've lived on, but not at all healthy, lungs, heart, cancer, Alzheimer's. And, and it may be a little late in the day for us to take the hint, but I think we can do a lot and get younger next year. Which also, I'll, just, I'll just say my dad died of prostate cancer. Right. My sister Sorry. died of breast cancer and just a couple of years ago. And, and my, and other grandparents and things. So it, it's in the family, it's in the blood. And so I learned though, through this, how not to die. I think it was the one or the other book that you can stop prostate in its tracks mm-hmm. by following this diet. So I just, I just had a good, you know, checkup with my doctor, my prostate's strong, healthy. My dad got prostate cancer in his fifties and died of it in his eighties. So I, I agree with you. And by the way, I think that you are what you eat you are what you read and you are what you experience. Mm. Those are three things I've put together in, in what you are. Yeah. Uh, and on the, me- on the mental side, because since you asked that, um, you know, I read a lot. I, I, I try to find something inspiring to read every day that helps me mentally, emotionally. And I, 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 there's a book called um, Man's Search for Meaning from Vic- Victor Frankel that was very good. Another one, Psycho-Cybernetics, that was helpful to me mentally. Uh, the Bible. I mean, anything that's inspiring, I like to read. I, I try to every day take some time to do that. Yeah, and it's lovely. Those are two books which I recognize and have listened to as well. And and my aim is to listen to sixty audio books a year, and I've wow. done that done that for the last three years. And, okay. and and that feeds the brain. So rather than watch the news, first thing <laughs> of the day, I'm listening to the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, and their wisdom. So rather than filling my brain full of negativity and fear and what's going on, I can't control around the world. I, I'm getting resolution and positive thoughts um, to cope That's with a good life, lesson. life's blows. Yeah, I think it yeah. is. Um, gosh, we've got so much to talk about and not very long. <laughs> so let's do some quick, okay. fire, some quick fire through these ones. EQ, emotional and social intelligence. It's a skill that you've clearly developed very well. What one tip would you give about improving your ability to perhaps influence people? Um, well, the one thing I'd probably say is, be, is something I call being fully present. I hear people talk about presence all the time, you know, have presence in, in your community, have presence in uh, you know, the show, the trade show you're in. Um, but a man named Bill Bennett, who used to be in one of my groups, I, I owned a company called Trustegrity, was a business uh, uh, networking company that I sold just before COVID that I co-founded. Uh, he was a member. He was an executive from AT&T. He joined one of our groups. He's a great, uh, great member. And he talked about the need to be fully, put the word fully in, in, front, of, in front of presence. Mm. And, and I'll just tell you why. I'm sorry about all these stories, but I think it brings up stuff when you ask. So mm. I was on a sales call. Uh, years ago, uh, as a VP of sales, I would go out and, and do work sessions, right, with the salespeople. And on this one sales call, uh, and I, VP of sales for the country, and I was trying to get our number. Every quarter, you had to get your number so you could keep, uh, you know, your stock up, whatever. 
And so I was concerned about getting our number. I was out with this guy and I was everything but concentrating on him. I was focused on thinking about, you know, the numbers, the deals that were going to come through, if I was going to hear from this sales guy or not. The guy I was in the car with noticed that I just wasn't focused on him. And, I'll, and, one, and so he stopped and at one point and said, Gary, he stopped the car. He said, where did you go? I said, well, what do you mean? Where did, where did I go? He says, well, we were talking and all of a sudden you were gone. And it taught me a valuable lesson that, you know, being present, fully present, recognizing the person that's in front of you, not being distracted, having the, the respect and the determination to make sure this time together is well spent, that it's productive, that that person feels um, acknowledged in your life and in this moment. Uh, I've tried ever since then to be much better at that. Mm. That's really, that story sticks with me. Where did you go? And all too often, I find myself, either personally myself or members of my family, I've got four children, um, my wife or I might be on the phone, not calling anybody, just <clears throat> scrolling through stuff, sitting next to each other, but we're not present with each other. And it, it takes a real constant work not to be distracted. There's so many distractions. Next one is CQ, cultural intelligence quotient, uh, collective intelligence, we even call it. But what's a tip for you about improving your understanding of others' diversity, equality, and inclusion? What, what would you say about better culturally understanding those who are different from you? Um, I'm lucky. I'm very fortunate that at the age of 19, I got to live in a different culture for two years. So the answer to that is it was, it's maybe easier for me now. Back then, it wasn't because it was very much of a culture shock. Again, never been on an airplane, never been in another culture, never learned another language. All of a sudden I was somewhere very, very foreign to me. Um, but that experience allowed me, because I was there to serve people, it, it allowed me to understand that embracing what's in front of you is important. That cultural differences, that diversity is, is a very, very good thing. Mm. And I love so many people around the world. I mean, I. And, and after writing my book and interviewing the people I, I wrote, there, many are not U.S. citizens. A few of them are not, excuse me. Um, I have broadened my perspective. I mean, I have friends now in places I never had friends before. I had a couple of friends in India. I, I hired a, a good Indian um, uh, sales engineer way back in the day, and we stayed friends. But, but wow, I have dozens of them in India now, and I have dozens because of my contact with my, my friend from uh, Romania who lives here, I have friends in Eastern um, uh, Europe. And I have, so I've really broadened that view and I, and I just love it. I just embrace it and I, and, I, and I learn from it. And it's been a good experience for me just even recently to do that. So I don't know how to, how to explain that, except that you have to trust what's in front of you, that there's goodness in everything you see and you yeah. should be looking for what's, what's positive and good in everybody. Yeah. That's all. Lovely story. Thank you. Resilience. Um, one top tip for how people can be more resilient in your experience? You know, uh, to be resilient, you have to be committed uh, to whatever comes in your way. And so I talk about uh, having a survival mindset in my books, the very first thing I talk about. And so being resilient to me means you have to acknowledge that things are not going to be exactly as you expect them to be. You should expect the unexpected. You should be ready for anything that comes along, even though you know it might be not, might, may not be easy to overcome or to deal with. You have to be prepared and say, I'm willing to accept responsibility, personal responsibility to, to deal with this situation. And so it's, it's basically situational management and, and saying, throw your best at me. Mm. I might not like it, but I'm going to deal with it. That's all. I mean, great. Yeah, it's go great. Ahead. It, it resonates with me. I was in the Scots Guards as a platoon commander, and uh, they just fought in the Falklands War a year before I joined them. Uh, I was on attachment to them from another, um, another regiment. A great honor to be with them. And the commanding officer who'd been in the war came out and he said, gentlemen, we need to prepare for the unexpected. And I thought, that's a real oxymoron. How can you prepare for the unexpected? 
And then it's like, you don't know what to expect. So how can you prepare for it? But it stayed with me always. And he said, let me mm. tell you a story. We were on public duties, wearing our tunics and our bearskins, standing outside Buckingham Palace. A week later, we were in Wales in combat kit in the rain. And a week later, we we're on a ship going to the South Atlantic to fight the Argentinians. And then we were in a battle losing colleagues. We didn't see that coming, but we could have been better prepared because you have to train hard to fight easy. And if you don't train and you get yourself flabby and out of shape, when the day comes, you're not proper prepared. So that really resonates for me, Gary. Quickfire brand, reputation, image and impact. What, what tip would you give about how to enhance your own brand and reputation? Um, focus on what's in front of you. I think it's back to that relationships. Now, everything I talk about is relationship, by the way, and people. But um, your brand is about how people perceive you. I mean, you might think you have a certain brand, but, but you should ask people, how do you, how do you see me? What, what kind of brand do you see in me? What, what are the aspects? What are the characteristics? What are the things that you think are positive and negative about me? Mm. And that's your brand. I mean, uh, the more people get to know you, the more your brand is developed, I think. So I would say that uh, you should really pay attention to what the feedback, feedback and look for feedback that's out there about you and ask mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. uh, ask people that tr you trust, ask people you don't trust, because you'll get you know, the, the truth, I think they'll, you want to get their immediate response because that's what I think your true brand is. No, really good. And that's why I'm a great believer in the coaching of the CEOs and chairman presidents I do to always get 360. Otherwise, you're in an echo or an ego chamber, as someone describes it, where you're colluding with them. And they're saying, I'm really great at this. And you are, oh, you're so great. Well, yeah, let's hear what everybody else has to say yeah. because your reputation, your brand is what people say about you when you're not in the room. When you're not in the room, it's not what they say yeah. about you. Thank you. Um, yes. Okay. Finally, of the uh, before we go into teams and then favorite book and then top tip, um, okay. the, the last bit of the inspiring leadership compass is legacy. What one thing would you like to be your legacy when you die, Gary? <clears throat> so my again, this integrity thing is something that's been ingrained in me, and so I think I I want to die with that on my graveside. I think mm. uh, this person had integrity. Uh, this person was loyal. Uh, this person was a contributor. Those are things that first come to mind. And then I guess I have to say, even more important than that to me is that I was serious about my roles in life. People looked at me as a serious, dedicated person, as a father, as a husband, as an employer, as a brother, as, you know, th those, if they could say that about me, it would be, it would be amazing. So yeah. that's what I hope to be. I don't think I'm there yet, but I'm working at it. No, I love it. Thank you. So Gary, we were talking you and I before about teams. You've been in many teams. You've set up so many teams and successful businesses, IPOs, been a serial entrepreneur. Um, when you've had a toxic team and you've tried to make it high-performing, what yeah. one tip of all the things you've done did you find most profound? Well, toxicity, I think, is something that can affect everybody on the team, right? I mean, you have one bad apple and it can affect everybody. So what I've learned to do is to immediately acknowledge if there is an issue with a person or a, or a situation. Uh, don't wait, don't postpone, don't think it's gonna go away because it doesn't go away usually. Uh, those first signs are the, tip of the, are the tip of the iceberg, I think. So I think you have to acknowledge it, you have to separate it quickly, identify it, evaluate it, see just how big of a problem it is. Uh, come up with a plan, include that person if that person can resolve it and, and make things better. Sometimes giving feedback is all that people need to be able to improve and, be, and become then a role model. I've seen it. Other times uh, they can't change. I mean, some people can't change, but uh, then I think you do your best to create a plan and get back on track. I mean, so you got you to size it up quickly. Yeah. 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 Make a plan and get back on track. That's very good. And often when you have someone who really is toxic or what I call the white collar psychopaths, and I've come across a few of them, um, sometimes they become the CEO, then actually you either have to emigrate to avoid them, 
but you're not going to change some of these people and you need to find help them find their happiness elsewhere and i think having the courage to do that people think oh we'll have a get well program and they'll sort themselves out in six months very rarely do they yeah um agree. you know agree. knowledge skills and attitude and, and it's the attitude <clears throat> and what you learned about as i did from stephen covey about character yeah and it's all about as you say integrity and character yeah. and if their character is flawed you're not going to change them and that's what you're half for half a character half a attitude and you can give them any job if they've got the right kind of attitude okay favorite book on leadership what would be your favorite book on leadership gary uh, there's many we've talked about, but one that, that we uh, that you thought people might not have come across. I mean, there's a great lot of books out there, good to great. There's a lot of great books I've read, and uh, but I ha- I really have to come back to this one. And I mm-hmm. listen, this book doesn't need to be promoted. <clears throat> it's already sold 40 million copies. If I could sell a tenth of that, I'd be happy. Um, Stephen Covey taught what true leadership was, based back to your point of being a, of good character of thinking of the end, you know, at, at the beginning, so you can see where the two of you want to go, and it's a win-win relationship, and so he goes from these first three habits to the second three habits, first is about independence, the second set is about interdependence, that's what it's all about, a leadership, person in leadership learns that it's interdependent, you're not a leader unless the people that support, that you lead supports you, you're not an influencer unless people that uh, uh, support you, want what you talk about, want what you, what you uh, decided to, to teach. So I think that's, for me, that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it's a, it's a cracking book. And I, I've listened, I've read it a number of times and being dyslexic, it's harder for me to read. I, I can read, but it's just harder. But I've loved going back and listening to the audiobooks too. And, and his son, um, Stephen, Stephen Covey. Uh, yeah, the, the, speed yeah. Of, the, the, the speed of trust. Um, you know, trust equals equals um, trust equals speed times cost, isn't it? So, so when there's low trust, things take so long and they're very costly. But when there's high trust, things happen just like that, and it's 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 really cheap to do it because there's no legal requirement and it's not meetings after meetings. I found that both of them did great work. Um, so okay. let's let's go into the finally, if you just introduce yourself again, what you do and your book okay. um, and give your top tip in two minutes. Uh, so sure. My name is Gary Laney. It's uh, been a pleasure to be here with Jonathan Bowman Firks. It's been a pr- pleasure and honor of mine uh, to, number one, just get to know, know him, talk about my past, which has been in, interesting for me to go back and, and talk about things that mean something to me. My book, The Power of Strategic Influence. 10 Success Factors of Highly Influential Leaders. Uh, The book is about helping you understand how to identify and gain presence, how to gain uh, the attention of highly influential people that can help you succeed. How do you succeed in life? When When I was wanting to become a motivational speaker, I thought it was all about me. And then I learned that it's no, it has to be reciprocal. It has to be integrated so that it's win win for everyone. And so once you learn that, then all of a sudden you have the opportunity to, to see, wow, the world can be much bigger because I have a sphere of influence. If I combine that with a sphere of influence of this person and, and others, by the way, your sphere of influence can become much broader. And that's how you do it, by, by integrating with other people, by assuming the role of an influencer, if you will. So my, my big tip, I guess, if I had to say one out of my book, and that is that you cannot proclaim yourself to be an influencer. Hmm. I'll just just say that again. You cannot decide yourself that you're an influencer. Mm. You have to rely on other people who agree with you, who like you, who understand you, who support your views, who want to follow you to be recognized as an influencer. At some point, that position, that stature, that level will be bestowed upon you and people will start talking about it. You don't have to say it. They'll say it. And then at that point, you have to say, okay, I have to accept the responsibility. If I'm an influencer, if I'm a leader, how do I assume the role in a responsible way that makes people around me feel like I'm, I'm doing a good job, that I'm trustworthy, that I'm dependable, that I can do the things that they would want me to do. So that's really my top tip. Relationships matter. Uh, it's granted to you by your colleagues, by your friends, by your employees, uh, by other people. And if you do that, you'll be satisfied because... People will like, like you for what you do. You'll like serving them. 
and uh, you'll have a great life. So that's, that's my two bits. Gary, thank you very much indeed. It's been a real honor having you on the series. I, I know the book will go down so well with so many people. I'm looking forward to listening to the audio version, which I know you're recording at the moment. Or having recorded Coming out soon, moment. yeah. Yeah, and that'd be great. So thank you for being on the Inspired Leadership Series. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Pleasure of mine as well. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.